This podcast is brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. Be sure to check out and subscribe to my other podcast, Thinking and Doing, where I examine logical fallacy, cognitive bias, stoic teachings, and tips on being better at life. I'm Michael Humer. Welcome. Um, I'm a professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder. I realize that you might not know who I am. So I'm a professor in the philosophy department, um, and, uh, and I'm a big-time libertarian. I just finished writing a book that's kind of a defense of anarchism, so I think that's how I got invited here. So that's who I am. I prepared this lecture about what I think is the best way of arguing for libertarianism. This is of some interest to me because that's kind of what I do. Um, Now, I put this quotation up here from Joseph Schumpeter because it's pretty striking to me. Capitalism stands its trial before judges who have the sentence of death in their pockets. They are going to pass it whatever the defense they may hear. The only success victorious defense can possibly produce is a change in the indictment. Referring to the idea that people have so many criticisms of capitalism, but it's basically if you refute one, then they will just change their criticism. Right? So first it's, oh, you know, capitalism can't produce as much as socialism. But then when that was proved to be false, then it's, well, the capitalism, it overproduces or something like that. So whatever, whatever happens, there's... there's you know, there's always some other criticism. And so, and it suggests that it's not simply that people are confused and haven't understood some fact, but that there's some underlying animus against capitalism, that people hate it. And so um, that's why they're looking for a reason to criticize it. So that got me thinking, too, about what is the best way of defending capitalism. Okay, now, so this is an overview of what I'm talking about. Um, Libertarianism, you all know what it is. Um, There are two varieties of it, minimal state libertarianism and anarcho-capitalism. Okay, I've already confessed that I'm the second one. And anyway, so as, as I understand it, libertarianism advocates at most a minimal state. So there are two possibilities. You could either advocate a minimal state or advocate no state, or less than the minimal Okay, um, there are three popular ways of defending libertarianism. Um, the first is there are commonly economic arguments for libertarianism. And second, there are commonly rights-based arguments. And then there might be a third alternative, which I'm advocating, which is the common sense approach. I'm going to explain what that is in a minute. You probably know what the other two are already. And so my contention is that the third approach is the best, in some, in some sense, the best. Um, oh, I put these pictures here because those are supposed to be pictures of the minimal state. It has police, courts, and a military. Okay. So, economic defenses of liberty. Now, obviously, this is more complicated than um, something that I could summarize in a talk, um, especially if I was going to talk about other things in addition. So, I'll just say that, roughly speaking, the economic argument for liberty is that liberty promotes preference satisfaction. Okay, and then there are all of these economists who think that that's basically the goal that you should be striving for, maximize satisfaction of preferences. Uh, there, are, there are potential shortcomings of this. Most importantly, that this view seems to rely on utilitarianism as a moral philosophy. That is, the idea that the right thing to do is always the thing that maximizes the satisfaction of people's preferences. 
the total amount of preference satisfaction for all people concerned, right? Um, and what's wrong with that? So, okay. And um, what's wrong with that is utilitarianism is false. Why are there pictures of two cats here? <laughs> because there's an example of why utilitarianism is false that involves a doctor and a patient. This is a very famous example in the moral philosophy literature. Um, the example is there are five patients who need organ transplants in the hospital, without which they will die. All five of them will die unless they get organ transplants. It happens that they need different organs. So, you know, one of them needs a lung, one of them needs a kidney, and then a liver, and one of them needs a heart, and the fifth one, I don't know, he needs a brain or something. Okay. <laughs> um, there happens to be one healthy patient who is somehow compatible with the other five. So, okay, <laughs> you're the doctor in the hospital, and you're thinking to yourself, hmm, yeah. What could we do here? So you could kill the healthy patient and you could distribute his organs to the other five. Should you do that? Okay. So how many think that you should kill the healthy patient to distribute the organs? Come on. Come on. Okay. Now, if this was a non-libertarian audience, there would be like one or two people who would put their hands up. There would be a couple of utilitarians. Um, okay. How many think you should not kill the healthy patient to distribute the organs? Okay, that's good. All right, there's one person who's not responding, who's abstaining. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so, but here's the thing. If the correct thing to do is to maximize preference satisfaction for everyone concerned, it looks like then you have to kill the healthy patient because one person dies, but then five people live, and five is better than one. So, okay, straightforward. Um, and by the way, this is not only a libertarian intuition. Almost everyone agrees that you should not kill the healthy patient to distribute the organs. So, um, okay. And uh, you know, just in general, so if you start saying, well, we need to have um, libertarianism because it maximizes preference satisfaction, it's very easy for people to say, but that's not the correct ethic, right? Utilitarianism is false, so, <laughs> okay. Um, we need moral arguments, for liberty. And the reason is, so the first problem was that utilitarianism is false, but the second problem is, it is, I've encountered economists who think that the easiest way to convince people of libertarianism is by economic arguments, and that it's much harder to convince people by moral arguments. I think that's only true if you're talking to economists. It is true if you're talking to economists, but only if you're talking to economists, because most people do not think like economists. That may be their problem. It is very unfortunate, perhaps, that they don't think like economists, but it is unlikely that you are going to change that by talking to somebody you know, for a couple of hours. Um, and most people will not accept a social system that violates their moral sense. In other words, even if you're convinced that the system is economically efficient, if you think that it's immoral, you still will not accept it. And you will still be searching around for reasons for rejecting it until, you, until somebody can convince you that it's not immoral or unjust. And this is why you have to confront moral philosophy. Okay. Now, there are rights-based arguments for libertarianism. That's a picture of Robert Nozick, um, perhaps the most prominent, most prominent academic philosopher anyway, who makes the rights-based arguments. Um, there's an argument based on the non-aggression principle, okay? The argument is basically, so you have a right against aggression. You have a right that other people not commit aggression against you through the use of physical force or threats of physical force or whatever it is that constitutes aggression. And 
you argue that various government policies commit aggression, and then this is the schema for the argument, and then you say, so therefore those policies are wrong. So, for example, um, the drug laws. Well, drug prohibition constitutes a kind of aggression um, because it coerces the drug users because they're threatened with being kidnapped and locked in a cage for some number of years. Um, that seems coercive. And the drug users themselves are not coercing other people merely by being drug users. Maybe they are also coercing other people, but the drug use itself doesn't constitute coercion, okay? Um, against others, so therefore coercing them when they haven't coerced others, that constitutes aggression. Right? And so therefore it's wrong. So you're all familiar with this sort of argument, I assume. Sort of argument against drug prohibition and various other policies. Okay. Um, there are problems for the rights-based approach to defending libertarianism. So the first pro problem is, at least according to almost everyone's moral beliefs, and probably yours too, it is possible for individual rights to be overridden by other moral considerations. So there's a famous example, the cabin in the woods example. This is where um, you've gotten lost in the woods and see it's kind of snowy and cold and you're in danger of starvation. There's this cabin in the woods. The owner is not there. Can you break into the cabin and then take some food to prevent yourself from starving? Okay, now I'm kind of curious about what the response is here. So you all understand the scenario. So how many say you can break into the cabin? How many? Sorry, Dan, to respond to that, let me be more clear. How many think that it is permissible to break into the cabin? Not that you're capable of doing it, but that it's permissible. Okay. How many think that it is impermissible to break into the cabin? All right. Wait, wait. Did you raise your hand both times? Yes, because I wanted to mention something. <laughs> it's, it's only permissible. It's permissible to do it. If you replace what you right. use, yeah. Ah, okay. In other words, you, uh, to, to steal something, yeah, okay. To steal something uh, becomes a crime when you are uh, immoral when yeah. you do not repay yeah. that person. Okay. So. Yeah, so you might think, well, you can break in, you can take the food, but then later you can compensate the victim. So two comments. Number one, that doesn't prevent it from having been a property rights violation, right? So, um, so it still illustrates the point that you can violate somebody's property rights if you have sufficiently important reasons. Um, second, suppose that you know that you will not be able to compensate the person. Then do you have to starve? Oh, no, I have to no. human nature to kill What? I carry my gun with me. I kill something. Okay, well, for some, you know, you've lost your gun. You still, okay. Don't, don't fight the hypothetical. Yes. I would maintain that in the case where you cannot repay the, that individual, yeah. you can still pay back to society. Okay. You can do something, yeah, pay it forward. Okay. Okay, well... I'm wondering how many comments and questions I should take because I might, because this might go on for the whole hour. Okay, go ahead. I was just going to say that generally ethical questions are about whether somebody has choice. So yeah. I, I, I don't think it's a fair critique of the ethical argument that when somebody doesn't have the choice, that you know they okay. can't act. So. Well, but you have a choice. I mean, you can starve to death. That's that's a choice. Well, you don't, well, then you can't be ethical. It's, I mean, it's a really, it's a really bad choice. But anyway, go, yeah, go ahead. So my point kind of plays on that is, as you look at it as a, a net morality, 
um, that they, you're trying to achieve. So that's, that's a little immoral to take that little bit, but uh, if it keeps you alive, you can then go do further moral things, thereby increasing your welfare. Yeah. Well, um, you're kind of anticipating what's coming, yeah. Okay, so here's another example. Um, kind of same idea. There's an injured person who needs to be rushed to the hospital for immediate medical attention. You don't happen to have your car, but there is somebody else's car there, and the owner is not around, or the owner is an asshole, and you know that he doesn't want people to be taken to the hospital or whatever. Um, but you happen to be able to hotwire the car, so you could do that, and you could take the person to the hospital. Is it permissible? How much do I love the Ah, I don't know. So, yes, but you have to make recompense to the owner. And so, yeah. So let me. You think twice about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, almost everyone says, "Yeah, you take them to the hospital." Okay, whether you have to do something else afterwards is another question, but isn't really the question that I'm asking. Um, it's a property rights violation, right? Okay, so claim is you can violate property rights. So, so what? So then these leftists are going to say, well, this is kind of like the government social welfare program. See, we, or the state, has to violate property rights in order to prevent some people from, A, starving, because the poor can't afford food or whatever, or B, going without medical care, because the poor can't afford medical care. So, um, unfortunately... So it is a property rights violation, but unfortunately we're going to have to take your money to give it to the poor so they can get medical care. Okay, so um, problem is that, you know, moral beliefs that almost everyone has, probably you too, can be used um, to attack the rights-based argument. Okay, um, here's another example which I just think is interesting, which isn't particularly politically relevant. Well, I don't know if it is or not, but anyway, it's just an interesting example. This is, this is the trolley problem. You see what's happening here? <laughs> okay. Um, there's a runaway trolley. It's going to go straight and hit the five people on the track there who, for some reason, can't get out of the way. Some bad person has tied them up. And um, there's a switch. You can't stop the trolley, but you can flip the switch, and then the trolley will go down the other fork where it will, unfortunately, hit and kill one person. Is it permissible to switch the trolley? In fact, they, you know... <laughs> Because you can ask. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so, and you can ask: Is it permissible to switch the trolley? Is it good to switch the trolley? Is it obligatory to switch the trolley? But anyway, let's just start with the the lowest question: Is it permissible? Right. So, how many say it's permissible to switch it from the five to the one? Okay. All right. How many say it is impermissible to switch it? Okay, and how many abstain? No opinion, okay. All right. Now, I will tell you that I think the response in this room is a little atypical. Usually there's a fairly strong majority that say you can switch the trolley. Um, Here it's a little uncertain. There's a large number of people who abstain and are unsure whether you can switch it. That may be because of pressure from the, the theory of rights. Yeah, you could, you could walk away, right? Um, now, so here's the thing. I think it's permissible to switch the trolley. And the great majority of people who think about this case intuitively say it's permissible. This is not explained by the rights-based approach. It's not explained by the theory of individual rights. Because, and by the way, notice how this is related to, similar to the earlier example of harvesting the organs, where almost everyone says it's impermissible. 
This is funny because in that case, in the organ harvesting case, it's wrong to kill one to save five. But in this case, most people think it's permissible to kill the one to save five. Um, none of them is going to cure cancer. Also, none of them is Adolf Hitler, nor Adolf Hitler's mother or father. <laughs> uh, these are all normal people. Okay. Question. I maintain you don't have a right to kill somebody. Yeah. When you make a choice here, I mean, you can do everything you can to stop that train. Yeah. Trolley, but you can't, if you, if you take it out the track, yeah. you're actually killing that one person. Yeah. You're saving four. That's right. You don't yes. have a right to, ki- to save a life. But if you walk away, then you've killed you six. Kill six. If you try to stop the yeah. trolley, that's yeah. fine, but you don't have a right to take a life. Okay. So, well, what he's saying is actually illustrating the rights-based approach doesn't explain the common intuition about this. And you might say, so that shows that you can't switch the trolley, or you might say that shows that the rights theory is uh, inadequate. There's something else going on. If you switch the trolley and, you know, then it runs over the one person, will you have violated that person's rights? Looks like yes, right? And by the way, if you're not convinced of that, imagine that the five people weren't there and you switched the trolley and it ran over one guy. Then you would definitely have, <laughs> you would have killed him, you would have violated his right to life. So, and the fact that five people are there, it doesn't seem like that can change whether it's a rights violation or whether it counts as killing, right? It is killing him. But if you don't do anything, you violate the rights of the Yeah, so if you don't do anything, you will allow the five people to die. And yeah, you wouldn't have killed them exactly. You would have just allowed them to die, allowed them to be killed, right? Comment? So in this situation, let's say you make the choice and and it goes down the track of the one person. If that person dies, you know that your choice killed that person. But you don't know if your choice necessarily saved those others. Because there could have been something else, like asteroid hits the train before it gets there, or any offer of, I know the train is very likely, but... Yeah, well, but see, if, I, if you switch the trolley, it's also possible that an asteroid will hit it before it reaches the one guy. The outcome is the trolley killed the one person. You don't know if the only other alternative was it would have killed those five. Okay. Okay, so, yeah, it is true that you, you don't know any contingent facts about the external world with absolute certainty. So, but nevertheless... You know, we, we normally make decisions based upon, let's say, practical certainty. Okay, comment? But I just think that in a lot of ways, this isn't even a question of rationality or rights. I mean, in all reality, in this situation, you're going to be under the gun to do something and yes. just make a choice. Don't think you're going to have a chance to even think about, is the right thing to, you know, to save the four or the one or whatever. So I yeah. really don't really feel like this is even a rights question. I think this is like a, a reactionary... Yeah, so the way this is described, it looks like um, you don't have much time because, look, there's only like one inch before the thing gets to the track. But, okay. But here's the thing. Like, we could, you could think about situations like this in advance in case they happen. So, we, like, we have time right now to think about it. By the way... Um, there was an actual case which was like this that I read about in um, um, in moral philosophy paper. Um, actual news story: there was a Union Pacific train 
um, or a collection of cars where somebody had improperly set the brakes. And so this bunch of cars started rolling downhill. Um, and it was going to roll into downtown Los Angeles, which is a problem. <laughs> and so, um, and the Union Pacific people, they were deciding whether to switch it to another track to go into Culver City, which is smaller. <laughs> and so, um, and there was a complication though, because the track in Culver City was rated for a lower speed than the track in Los Angeles, which made it more certain that it was going to jump the track. So what did they do? Uh, and so they switched it. They switched it into Culver City. And the train went off the rails. It smashed somebody's house. Miraculously, it didn't kill anyone. But that was luck, right? If there had been anyone in the house, right? So, um, but anyway, okay. Now, um, well, I wasn't going to spend a lot of time debating about this. Um, I'm just going to assert uh, you should switch the trolley. Sorry. <laughs> I don't, don't agree with that. Now, um, it's, it's really interesting to just sit and think about what the differences might be between the trolley case and the organ harvesting case. And um, if this was, you know, one of my ethics classes, we could spend an entire class with the, you know, you could be giving me possible explanations of the difference, and then I would refute all of them for about an hour, and then I would finally tell you um, what I think it is. But, okay. So anyway, so here's the thing. Um, a different approach to defending libertarianism, not the economic argument and not the argument from rights or the non-aggression axiom. Just make this observation. The government does a whole bunch of things that if anyone else were to do them would be uncontroversially wrong, Con considered wrong by virtually everyone, including not only libertarians but also Democrats and Republicans. So if I, for example, were decide, to decide to go around taxing people, uh, we call that extortion, actually. So, and it doesn't matter if I have a good cause, actually. I could say, you know, I'm collecting money to give to charity. I mean, I want to help the poor, whatever. I could, I, and I could genuinely be giving it to charities to help the poor. Still, even Democrats would say, I can't do that. I can't just like, go out on the street and start robbing people at gunpoint. Um, or suppose I decide to go to war. Suppose I decide, you know, there's a, there's a foreign government that's, you know, posing a potential threat at some time in the future. Um, and so I go over there and I start blowing up buildings and shooting people. Uh, what would they call this? Well, we do have a name for people who do this. We call it terrorism, right? Um, using violence, including against innocent people, in order to bring about a political change. Yeah, that's called terrorism. Um, it's called war if the government does it. Um, suppose I decide to do some drug prohibition on my own. So I, I find some substances that are unhealthy to eat, maybe potato chips or, um, or, or recreational drugs. It's unhealthy. I don't want you doing it. So then I look for people who are doing it, and then I kidnap them at gunpoint, and I lock them in a cage for three years or whatever. Um, again, even even Republicans would say I shouldn't do that, <laughs> right? Okay, so that's the interesting thing. The thing is, like, you don't have to appeal to some controversial moral view. And so then the question is just, well, why is it okay for the government to do those things, right? I don't have to appeal to a controversial moral view because I'm pointing to things that almost everyone would say was wrong if anyone else was doing it. So now, you, do, you know, you just have the question of why the government is different from all other agents, 
Okay, so now the answer to this nominally is that the government has a special characteristic known as political authority, right? Well, what it, that's really just giving a label on on the difference without explaining what it is. But the government is supposed to have a special entitlement to rule. That is, more specifically, to make rules and then enforce them by a threat of violence. It's almost a religion. Sorry? It's almost a religion. Almost a religion. Yeah, comment? Yeah, uh, in order for government to do that, government has to provide you with something. Yeah. And it has to be a quid pro quo. So, yeah. And if government doesn't provide you with that, then you don't have an obligation. Okay. Yeah, so that might be um, a theory of authority, right? So I'm asking, what is the basis for the government's authority? And you might say, well, because the government provides us with protection or something. Um, okay, but the government is supposed to have this special entitlement to make rules and enforce them through a threat of violence, and simultaneously, um, we're supposed to have an obligation to obey the rules that the government makes. Notice that this is different from all other agents. There's no other agent, either individual or corporate or you know organizations, that has this characteristic where they get to make rules and then force everyone to obey them or you're obligated to do what they say just because they said it. Uh, now, there can, of course, be cases in which somebody tells you to do something and you're obligated to do it, but you're not obligated to do it just because they told you to. So if I tell you, don't commit murder, you're obligated to not commit murder, but not, it's not because I said it, right? Also, there can be a situation where, let's say, your boss tells you to do something and then you're obligated to do it, but again, well, there's an explanation for that which is you kind of signed a contract to work with the boss. You didn't sign a contract to work with the government, right? So there's a puzzle as to why the government would have this characteristic. Um, that, by the way, is a picture of authority. In case, you can't receive, in case you can't see it, it says, you will respect my authority. That's, oh, okay, that's Eric Cartman. Um, and that's supposed to make you see how authority is problematic. Okay, anyway, so there are different theories that people have about what is the origin of political authority. Um, there's a traditional social contract theory, which, um, I don't know, might be the most popular theory in the United States. It, it usually comes up, um, and it's kind of amazing that social contract theory is actually an amazing example of the success of philosophers in convincing people of a philosophical idea, because before the time of about John Locke, no one believed that. No one believed there was a social contract. Locke, Hobbes, Rousseau, and a few other philosophers decided to come up with this, this theory and then somehow managed to get it into our culture so that you see it in people who are not even like philosophy students, like just people on the street know about this social contract theory. Comment? Yeah, um, we, we learned in law, and uh, law studied law, and I had to take law study. Yeah. But a contract has three components. One mutual said two capacity... And three, um, um, pro. Consideration, yeah. Consideration. But there was no mutual assent. I never consented to the social contract. Yeah, that is a problem, right? <laughs> um, now, there are, there are theories that people have to address that. But anyway, secondly, there's a hypothetical social contract where they say, okay, it's true that you didn't actually consent, but you would have consented in some hypothetical scenario. Okay, by the way, so the character on the right there is John Locke, the, um, this, the smartest advocate of the social contract theory. The person in the middle is John Rawls, who is an advocate of a hypothetical contract theory. Um, the person on the left there is David Hume. He's an advocate of the consequentialist account. 
Um, okay, there are democratic theories of authority. I don't have a picture for that, but where um, people say that the democratic process somehow legitimates the laws and gives the state the right to enforce the laws, the fact that they were made democratically. There's a consequentialist account which says that, well, we just have to allow the government to tell everybody what to do in order to prevent some horrible disaster from happening where society would collapse or something like that. Okay, so now I don't have time to talk about all of those, so I'm just going to talk about the, what I think are the two most commonly heard. There's the social contract theory, the traditional social contract theory, according to which, well, the, there's a contract between us and the state. The state has agreed to provide law and order and to protect us from criminals and foreign aggressors. In return, the citizens agree to obey the state, including by paying taxes. Okay, and then the question is, yeah, um, I don't remember having agreed to that, so when did that happen? Can somebody show me the contract or, I don't know, or show me the tape recording of me saying that? <laughs> Okay, um, and the, the most, popular thi- most popular response to this is, well, you didn't agree explicitly, you agreed implicitly. Which is, which is to say, sometimes you can agree to something, not by actually saying that you agree, but there's something about your conduct that implies that you agree. This is the idea of implicit agreement or tacit agreement. Um, okay, I'm going to explain this more in a second, but first, comment? Yes, uh, it doesn't matter whether you agree or there's an agreement through presence, uh, the first point, government agrees to provide law and protection, that doesn't exist. So the government, there's no quid pro quo here. Yeah. You're not getting, uh, the Supreme Court has yeah. said, you don't, uh, the state doesn't have to provide you that. So the state has reneged on its deal, so there is no contract. Yeah, good, okay. Now I think, I think I was going to say that on a future slide, but yes. There is a problem that the government actually has not agreed to do anything for you. Um, Just to say, if there is a contract, then typically if the other party doesn't hold up their end of the contract, you can sue them or something, and you can get some kind of compensation. If you try to sue the government because they failed to protect you, um, you're going to lose, basically. Um, Okay, but anyway, here's what people say about how you agreed to the social contract. You agree just by being in a certain location, Um, This has got to be the easiest way of agreeing to something. So, um, However, this is supposed to be analogous to a scenario like the following. I've got this party at my house, right? We're all, okay, we're all partying, and I say, all right, now anybody who stays at the party, you have to agree to help me clean up at the end of the party, okay? Everybody hears this. I say this loudly and clearly. You don't say anything, but you just continue partying. So now, have you agreed to help clean up at the end? So now the claim is yes, you've kind of agreed. So now you're kind of obligated to help. All right. Well, maybe that's analogous to the fact that by staying in the country, maybe you sort of agree to have the government that that occupies that country. Um, That's the most popular thing that said. I think the reason that that's popular is that this is the only way of the only alleged kind of agreement that you can um, impose on everyone (laughs) or everybody who's in the territory. Okay. another thing that's sometimes said is, well, you accept benefits that were provided by the state. So sometimes it's said, like, if you ever call the police to report a crime or something or, and ask them to help you in some manner, then you're implicitly agreeing to have a government. Okay, well, I'm going to address the agreement through presence. That is the most popular thing that I heard, I've, I've heard, and um, it's also maybe the most ridiculous. So most ridiculous claim for how you could agree to something. So it is true that you can set conditions on the use of your property, 
Okay, now actually just as a technical point, in the example where I, I have the people at my party and I say, you have to help clean up if you stay at the party, you, I think you do have some obligation to help clean up at the end of the party, but it's not because you agreed. It's because I have the right to set conditions on the use of my property. And by staying in the house, you were using my property, and, now, and the condition that I set on that was that you helped clean up. So uh, you can set conditions on the use of your own property. So then the question becomes, um, well, of course, you can't set conditions on the use of other people's property. So if I go to your house and I say, if you want to stay here, you have to agree to give me $10, <laughs> um, that doesn't work. And, then, and if you're not saying anything, you just continue to sit in your house, you're not obligated to give me the $10 because it's not my house. So the question becomes, you know, does the state actually own all of the land in the, in the country? Does it own everything? Well, yeah, how would, they, how would they own all the land? Like, how could they claim to acquire that? Um, well, one thing they could do is they could just pass a law that says that they own all the land. Now, <laughs> that is... Um, that is an, a possible interpretation of the law of eminent domain, right? That the state really owns everything. So you might think, actually, the state has such a law. They do have a law that says they own everything. Um, okay, but the, the only problem with that is that that presupposes the state's political authority. So, yes, if they already have legitimate authority and, you know, they have the authority to just make whatever rules they want, then they can say, we own everything. But... The whole thing is, like, we were trying to establish their authority. Like, what's the basis for their authority in the first place? The social contract theory was supposed to explain the basis for their authority. You can't presuppose that the government has authority in order to establish the contract. Okay. Um, Other problems, these are just general problems with the social contract theory. There's the refusal to accept explicit dissent. So typically, one of the conditions on a contract is that you can't say that somebody has agreed to the contract if they explicitly said at the time that they didn't agree. You can't then say that they implicitly agreed. So, right, so explicit statements trump alleged implicit agreements, right? So, um, example, I go to the restaurant and I say, all right, could you please bring me whatever, some food? Okay, bring me the shrimp scampi. And then they go away and they bring it to me. And then after I eat it, then they bring me this bill, and I go, what? I never agreed to pay for this, right? If you wanted payment, you should have said so at the start. Okay, and it's true. Usually they don't say that they're going to expect payment. Right? In fact, I'm not sure I've ever been in a restaurant where they said, you're going to have to pay for this. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> yeah, there are some restaurants that don't even have a price, okay? But and sometimes you can order without looking at me. Anyway, it's and so it's true. I didn't say I was going to pay for it, right? I have almost never said in advance I'm going to pay for this. <laughs> okay, uh, you can claim well, you could claim that I implicitly agreed to pay for it because something like well, it's an understanding in our society that this is, that this is how restaurants work. Okay, but now imagine a slight modification. I go into the restaurant, I sit down, I say, please bring me the shrimp scampi. By the way, I will not pay for it but I want you to bring it anyway, please. If they bring it at that point, then I don't have to pay for it. They can't say, well, you implicitly agreed to pay for it because my explicit statement cancels the alleged implicit agreement, right? Okay, the problem is if you go to the government and you say, I don't agree to have you, they refuse to recognize that. So if you write a letter to the IRS and say, by the way, I don't, I don't want to have a government, so please refund all of the money that was withheld from my paycheck, 
uh, you're not going to get the money back. In fact, they'll probably just audit you, so <laughs> you shouldn't really do that. Um, okay, that's the first problem. Second problem is the lack of mutual obligation, which we mentioned before. Um, the state hasn't actually recognized any obligation to you. Many people find this um, amazing. When I tell people this in the class, many people are surprised to learn that. Yeah, sorry, going back. Yeah, there's a, the famous case of Warren versus District of Columbia. This is a case where, well, basically the police failed in a very negligent way to protect the three women who were living in this townhouse in D.C., and they subsequently sued the D.C. Police Department. They lost the case on the basis of the legal doctrine that the government has no obligation to provide police services to any individual. The judge then went on to say that, well, the police only have an obligation to provide service to society in general. They provide a deterrent to crime for society in general. And you might think that that means that, okay, so what if they're not serving society in general, then could you, serve, could you sue them for that? But I'm pretty sure that you're, you'll lose that one too. It's really unclear what the government could possibly do such that they would have failed in their obligation, um, you know, such that they would admit that they had failed and then you'd be able to collect money. Uh, there are various other cases. Uh, there's another case with a child who was beaten and suffered brain damage by his father, and then the mother sued the Department of Social Services because um, they, they knew about the abuse, you know, before, before it got worse, and they didn't do anything about it. Um, she lost also. Um, so, okay. Every, basically, you know, all of these cases, the only time the government has an obligation to protect you as an individual is if you are in their custody. So ironically, the women in that case didn't have any right to government protection, but after the criminals were arrested, they had a right to government protection. <laughs> right. Okay, um, other thing that's commonly said is that somehow the democratic process confers authority. So the fact that the laws are made, laws are authorized by the people, um, democracy implements a certain ideal of equality, the fact that everybody has an equal say in the decision-making process, every person gets one vote, and sometimes it's said that you have an obligation to respect other citizens' judgments, um, which, which are expressed by their votes. And so because of all of this, you, you should obey the results of the democratic process, and um, the state should enforce them. Okay. Roughly, that's, what I, that's what's said. Um, here's my, that's my depiction of democracy. That's three wolves and a sheep, and they're voting on what to have for dinner. <laughs> so... Okay, what's the problem with the democratic theory of authority? First is that typically majority will does not justify coercion. So you're sitting at the table, and you know, there are three people who want to kill the fourth. Do they have the right to kill the fourth? Because there are more of them than there are of him, right? It's three to one, majority will, right? Um, now, I'd like to point out, by the way, it's not just with murder. I mean, even with much lesser degrees of coercion. There's practically no situation... Maybe there's no situation in which a normal person would judge that an act of coercion was permissible just because a larger number of people approved it, right? Other than in the case of government, right? In no other situation do people think that that's the case. Um, so it could be three people, it could be four people sitting around a table and three of them want to take $10 from the fourth and the fourth doesn't want to give it away. They don't have the right to take it just because there are three of them, Right. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah, for those of you who can't see, he's rolling his eyes. <laughs> um, right, but so, you know, well, what if the three people have a piece of paper that says, 
you know, and then in, and all three of them vote to accept this piece of paper, and it says we have the right to take your money away. Now, do they have the right to take his money away? And the thing is, like, it could even—it's a minor bit of coercion, right? Just taking ten dollars. It could be one dollar, right, or it could be a penny. So even really minor coercion, it's a really minor rights violation. But still, a rights violation doesn't cease to be such just because a larger number of people support it. So it's really unclear what the democratic process is supposed to do or how that's supposed to change things. Um, procedural equality doesn't make any difference. So you know, you could, I could stipulate that the sheep had an exactly equal role in the decision-making process. He got one vote. He had a chance to have his say. We could even give him, you know, we could give the sheep two votes if you want. I mean, but, um, I mean, ethically speaking, it doesn't make any difference. The fact that he had an equal role in the decision-making process, or the fact that it was a fair procedure, doesn't take away the substantive rights of the sheep or whoever it might be. Um, the need to respect other people's judgments doesn't negate individual rights. By the way, these are arguments, I mean, the stuff about you have to respect other people's judgments, that's actually in the academic philosophy literature. Um, right? You could look at Tom Cristiano's book, The Constitution of Equality, right? and he makes the, makes the point about respecting people's judgments and also about how democracy implements equality and equality is this really important value and all that. Okay, um, but the thing is, so, you know, what if the sheep says, no, I refuse to be killed, and he tries to run away? He's not respecting the judgments of the three wolves, because they all think that he should die <laughs> and get eaten, and he, he's the only one who thinks that he shouldn't get eaten, okay? And again, you know, you could have the more trivial rights violation, like, I'm the only one who thinks that I shouldn't give away my dollar, and the other people, <laughs> the other three people at the table all want me to give away the dollar, Right? So am I disrespecting them, like not respecting their judgment by keeping the dollar? You know, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm not respecting their judgments, but isn't it even more clear that they would be disrespecting me by trying to take the dollar from me? So, okay. Now, um, that's all I'm going to say for different theories of authority. There are other theories of authority out there, but we don't have time to talk about all of them, but you can get my book and read about it. Um, okay, but that's just an illustration, and uh, an illustration of how you can respond to arguments for authority and basically respond by appealing to common sense moral philosophy, common sense morality. Um, why is the common sense approach superior? By the way, I, I mean, I want to point out about this that my way of criticizing those theories of authority is not an appeal to any special libertarian values. It's just an appeal to common sense morality. Those examples that I was giving, virtually everyone would agree on the correct verdict. Virtually everyone, even Democrats, agrees that if you're sitting at a table with four people, the three people can't just take a dollar from the other person just because there are three of them. Okay, now this is why the common sense approach is rhetorically superior to other more traditional approaches like the economic and rights-based arguments. It puts the status on the defensive immediately. That is, once you point out this moral asymmetry that they're applying a double standard, the state gets to do stuff that nobody else gets to do, it then becomes their burden, the status burden, to explain the basis for that asymmetry. It's not your burden to give this whole moral philosophy and defend this theory of the nature of value and rights and why people have rights and all of that. Um, and it relies on widely accepted premises, as I was suggesting. The stuff about rights is not as widely accepted. There are, um, there's a significant minority of people who think that there's no such thing as a right. 
that rights don't exist. Um, and there are people who disagree upon if there are rights, what rights there are. And some people think there are positive rights as well as negative rights. And so, um, but the things that I was relying on are really widely accepted. And the common sense approach is also epistemically superior. That is, um, superior from the point of view of getting the truth. So not only rhetorically more effective. And why... Okay, so to explain why this is a, a superior approach from the standpoint of getting to the truth or from the standpoint of reliability, I make these observations, right? First observation is almost all philosophical theories are false. This is a picture of a series of philosophers who are wrong. Now... Not only, not only philosophers who are wrong, but philosophers who said something that kind of implied that they had conclusively proved certain controversial philosophical theses, which now today almost everyone thinks are wrong. Okay, so the first one is Plato. Um, he thought, among other things, that he proved the immortality of the soul, that you have a soul and that it's immortal. That's um, Thomas Aquinas is the second one. He offered not one, not two, but five proofs for the existence of God, they're all supposed to be conclusive proofs. Um, there's Descartes, who also, quote, proved the existence of God. Um, there's Spinoza, who not only proved the existence of God, but proved a whole metaphysical system with all kinds of bizarre things, that uh, everything that happens is necessary, etc. There was Leibniz, who had a different bizarre metaphysical system that he also proved, quote, proved. These are, these are all scare quote uses of proved. There's Bishop Berkeley, who um, had the most amazing proof. He proved that there's no such thing as matter, there are no material objects. And everything that you see around you is just ideas in your mind. And he claimed that he had conclusively proved that. There could be no doubt. And finally, there's Immanuel Kant, who claimed that he'd proved his um, weird epistemological system. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's a little too much. Yeah. A little bit too much to describe beyond that, okay. Um, all right. Um, and they're all wrong. Now, you might not agree with me that all of those things are wrong, but you probably agree that none of those things was actually proved. Okay, but here's the thing. People are, throughout the history of philosophy, for thousands of years, people have constantly been coming up with arguments that the person who comes up with the argument thinks is totally convincing, but they're wrong. Okay, now, you might think that you're special, that you know, now has finally come the time when somebody has actually proved a really controversial philosophical thesis. Um, but if so, I mean, if you think that, you're probably wrong. Yeah, you're, you're probably not smarter than all those people. Okay, and, I, and this is relevant because I think, actually, there's a certain cognitive style which is pretty common among libertarians, um, which is this rationalistic style, where you start by laying down some axioms, like non-aggression axiom, okay? Or if you talk to the um, Ayn Rand objectivists, uh, existence exists, and then whatever. And then, and then you prove libertarianism from that. Um, okay, um, and I, I want to say that this cognitive style is um, very prone to error, right? And so, and that's part of what I'm trying to illustrate with this, you know, picture of all the all the people who had that approach. They started from some set of allegedly self-evident axioms and then deduced a bunch of conclusions, which turn out to be, you know, a bunch of crazy stuff. Okay, okay, comment. Uh, just that, kind of the way I look at it is, is that. Nothing is ever really proved all the way across. Uh, it's, it's just all you can, you, you can set up is give evidence for it. And then people accept the evidence as good enough to prove it for them on an individual basis. 
Yeah. Um, and, if, and obviously, if you have a large, large majority of people saying, yeah, we accept this, this is, you know, then it's kind of considered as proved to, that, yeah. to them, all those individuals. But yeah, okay, good comment. Yeah, comment? Well, a lot of these things also, too, are they're kind of proof positive as opposed to proof negative. And I'll just give one example of that. I can't remember who it is, but there's a great book by a philosopher, which basically the whole book says, proves that you can't prove the existence of God. Right? So you can do a little bit of that. You can say there's all of these things that we can't prove in the positive sense. We can't say that this is absolutely true. But we can say that we know we can't prove it. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure that you can prove that you can't prove things. <laughs> I'm not sure that the negative proofs work, actually. And, and, by the way, uh, yeah. Um, by the way, um, now my claim isn't that you can't prove anything, because I think, for example, that there are some mathematical theorems that have really been proved. Uh, I think there are some, there are even some philosophical things that have been proved. Um, but not very many, just few. Yeah. I was just wondering if you were critical of Austrian economics on the same grounds that it's reductive and works from axioms and uh, stands out to draw conclusions in that way. Um, well, good question, but I don't know that much about it. Uh, <laughs> um, actually, my knowledge of Austrian economics comes largely from Brian Kaplan's paper, Why I Am Not an Austrian Economist. And it may be a maybe a slightly biased perspective, so. Um, or, you know, or, you know, maybe they're the ones who are biased and he's, he's just telling the truth, right? Um, anyway, so, okay. Human knowledge proceeds from the concrete in particular to the abstract in general. This is a general um, epistemological observation. By the way, it is not self-defeating because I did not arrive at this as an axiom. I arrived at this generalization by thinking about a large number of particular cases. Okay, now, um, unfortunately, something, something unfortunate happened, um, you know, early in the history of philosophy, which is philosophers discovered Euclid's Elements, uh, which is this wonderful mathematics book, right? Wonderful book of geometry, and people used to have to study it in, um, in school, in their geometry classes. I'm not sure if they do it anymore. Okay, but anyway, it and starts with these geometrical axioms and then proves all of these um, geometrical theorems, and it's very convincing. There are all these things that are very convincingly proved and interesting claims as well that are not obvious before they're proved and so forth. Um, and philosophers, uh, philosophers looked at it and said, okay, so that's how all human knowledge should be. And then they started thinking, so like philosophy should be that way, and so we're going to lay down the philosophical axioms, and you know, the, here are the axioms of ethics, okay? Um, well, so, so to burst the philosopher's bubble, I don't know if any of you think this, but um, actually, even geometry doesn't work like geometry. Okay? So most of human knowledge does not work like Euclid's elements. Even geometry doesn't work like Euclid's elements. Okay, because what actually happened was Euclid's elements came thousands of years after the beginning of geometry. Geometry started with particular, uh, a series of much more concrete formulas for calculating areas and volumes and perimeters, which were mostly empirically derived, or there were guesses, or things that sort of seemed intuitively right to people. It was thousands of years after that. So it started in ancient Egypt, and um, it was mostly for surveying reasons that people needed geometry. They needed to know how much land somebody had. 
Okay, it was thousands of years after the beginning of geometry that Euclid came along, and having seen all of these little formulas and the little geometrical discoveries, then he tried to systematize it. Geometry did not start by somebody saying, well, let's see, you know, a point is something that has no parts, is the indivisible, and then any two points, there's a straight line between them. Okay, that's not how it started out, right? It was, they started out with all of these little formulas, and then somebody tried to systematize it, okay? So now, in moral philosophy, we are not yet at the stage of somebody being able to write down the axioms. We're still at the stage of collecting the little formulas. And if somebody tries to set down the axioms before you've done sufficient work, like you know, before thinking enough about the more concrete um, propositions, they're almost certainly going to get it wrong. Okay. Other observation is that the stronger your premises are, the greater is the risk of error. Obviously true, right? So if I start by saying, well, it's always wrong to kill an innocent person, that's kind of a strong statement. Well, even stronger would be it's always wrong to kill a person. Kind of a strong statement. There are probably some cases that I haven't thought of, and it's going to turn out that the statement is wrong. Right? Even with the always wrong to kill an innocent person. That's a really broad statement. I mean, in any circumstances, I'd have to be foreseeing every possible circumstance in which somebody kills an innocent person. Um, I'm probably going to be wrong because there are probably going to be cases that I haven't thought of. Now, what will commonly happen in the history of philosophy is that somebody, some other philosopher will bring up the case that is the counterexample. Like, here's a case in which you should kill an innocent person. And then the first philosopher will just dig in his heels and insist, no, because I made the original statement. I have to stick to it. So it's wrong to kill a person in that case, too. Okay. Um, But here's something that you can say. Well, Ted Bundy's murders were wrong. That's really clear. It's not going to turn out that um, that's actually mistaken, right? It's not going to turn out that there are further circumstances, so actually Ted Bundy was justified, no. Um, Okay, so if you can make an argument based upon the more concrete specific claim, that's better. It's less prone to error. If I don't have to make some universal generalization, or I don't have to give this general theory about morality and what what is right and wrong and what rights everybody has and when you can violate a right and all that. I don't have to give this complete general theory. If I can just rely on some concrete cases, it's much more likely that I've got correct premises. Uh, And that's what I'm proposing with a common sense approach, that I tell you an analogy. I tell you a little story where somebody does something and then you agree that that action would be wrong. And then there's an analogy between that and something that the government is doing. And so it looks like then you can make the argument that what the government is doing is wrong also. Okay, comment? Uh, just related to universalizability, yeah. you do subscribe to that in some sense because you're saying that this universal principle, principle that's wrong for an individual to steal, that part's wrong for the government to steal. And I tend to agree with that just intuitively. I'm just curious, um, how do you defend that to people as to why it's important to accept that principle? Well, um... Luckily, I don't think that you have to defend that because, um, yeah, I mean, um, I don't, I don't know of even any philosopher who disagrees with it. Okay, yeah. So you know, you say, okay, so this action is wrong. You know, person, this person did action A and that was wrong. Then this person did action A and that was right. Okay, and then if somebody says that you can say, well, what's the difference? between person one and person two. And I've never yet have some, had somebody say, there's no difference between them. Why do you think there should be a difference? 
It's just the only difference is that this one was right and that one was wrong. But in all other respects, they're the same. They do the same action. The people have the same characteristics. It's just, you know, one was right, one was wrong. Nobody thinks of that, right? <laughs> and now, you know, you can, have a more, you can have a broader philosophical question. Yeah, but how do we know things like that, right? <laughs> Which is, you know, may, maybe not exactly a practical question, but it would be an interesting question for epistemologists, okay? Um, but it looks like that's just an intuitive principle. Okay. Um, now, uh, my, my last topic is, okay, anarchy or minimal state. So does the common sense approach support anarchism or does it support minimal state libertarianism? Uh, so here's, here's the thing. Libertarianism can be defended by mo- common sense morality in the way that I've suggested. Uh, anarchism can't really be. And the reason for that um, is that common sense morality is not absolutist. So in common sense morality, it is permissible to violate somebody's rights if there are sufficiently important reasons for doing so, as in the case of taking somebody's car to take someone to the hospital. Um, And in particular, so the government is violating people's rights periodically, or actually, well, (laughs) basically all the time. But um, if that's necessary to prevent something much worse from happening, then most people would say that was acceptable. Okay, and so, and in fact, the majority of people believe that anarchy would result in some horrible disaster, like society, all social order would collapse, people would be, you know, eating each other's brains in the streets, and, you know, okay, they wouldn't, wouldn't quite be zombies, but they would all be killing each other and robbing each other, and all right, and there would be no buildings or anything, because, you know, you can't stop and build a building, because you have to defend yourself all the time, right? Okay, so... Uh, That's most people's picture of anarchy. And if that was true, then anarchy would be wrong and bad. (laughs) Then government would be justified. Then a minimal state would be justified. So you um, you you can't defend anarchy as opposed to the minimal state solely on the basis of common sense morality. You also need some empirical premises about how the society is going to work and and why it's not going to be that kind of the zombie apocalypse disaster. Okay, comment? Um, I think you kind of can defend anarchy through common sense morality the exact same way you've been doing. So you can make an analogy where you say, would you believe you would get justice if you went to a court operated by the company that you're trying to seek justice against? Yeah. Um, what a likeness of that happening? And then you can apply that to the state in the way it works now. Yeah. And then common sense, you would say, well, no, the courts would be biased in favor of the company because they represent, they, they elected it, they're in control of it, they get to yeah. uh, figure out the legislation and how it's interpreted and yeah. the arbiters. And then you could make that direct correlation to uh, monopoly privileges for courts and laws and legislation. Yep. Yeah, so... Yeah, so you can make the argument that we shouldn't have a monopolistic court system because, you know, you can't trust... Or we shouldn't have a monopoly government because you can't trust the government to be the judge in its own case, right? If you have a dispute... Yeah. If you have a dispute with the government, it gets resolved by the government. And there's a problem with that. And that is true. However, that is a much smaller problem than, you know, the apocalypse where we're all killing each other, the Hobbesian state of war of everyone against everyone, which is what the critics of anarchy have very commonly said, right? That anarchy is just a war of everyone against everyone. You're constantly fighting. Um, Okay, so... like, yes, you can make the argument that there's this problem with government, but we still have to explain why the anarchist system is not going to work that way. It's not going to degenerate into the constant violence. 
Um, and you need complicated and partly empirical arguments to do this. Um, so, and we don't really have time to give those arguments now, but you can look at my book. Okay, so summary. We should not defend liberty solely by appeal to either economic arguments or rights-based arguments. By the way, it's not that I disagree with the economic arguments. It's just that I think that they're not sufficient to convince most people. Um, and you shouldn't just appeal to the non-aggression axiom either. Instead, you should defend libertarianism on the basis of common sense morality. As to defending anarchism, you need more complicated empirical reasoning. So we need to describe how the protection agencies are going to work and why they're not going to fight with each other and all of that stuff. And you need basically economic reasoning. Uh, and then you need to explain why other countries are not going to take over the anarchists and stuff like that. Okay, uh, these are two books that you can look at for further reading. There's my book, Ethical Intuitionism, which is uh, kind of about the foundations of ethics. More, of more relevance, and uh, the more recent and more important book is The Problem of Political Authority, where the first half of it argues that uh, political authority is an illusion, that, in fact, nobody has authority in the sense that the state claims it. And the second half of it argues that anarchy would actually not be so bad. Okay. Um, now, um, I have another talk tomorrow where I'm going to talk about the psychology of authority, which will be about why most people kind of believe in authority. So if you like this one, then you can come to that one. And I think we have a lot of time for questions and discussion now, right? The Ron Paul Homeschool Curriculum is a self-directed education trove for ages 5 to adult. Students will learn all about economics, history, mathematics, science, and even business and personal finance. To sign up for the Ron Paul Homeschool Curriculum, please use my special link at ronpauleducation.com. That's ronpauleducation.com. Will you do me a big favor? Will you rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening from? That really helps. And one more thing, please share the podcast with your friends. <laughs>